0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, I discuss the folklore of the Isle of Man with James Franklin. Born and raised on the island, James is the online and educational resources officer for Culture Vanin an organisation created to support, protect and promote Manx culture in inclusive, creative and engaging ways. As part of that, he was recently involved in a project to reprint and publish a collection of folklore compiled by Carl Roeder on the island at the beginning of the 20th century, originally named Manx Notes and Queries, and now splendidly titled Ghosts, Bagairns and Fairy Pigs. The book contains over 250 notes, which include encounters with an impressively broad range of supernatural entities, ghosts, fairies, witches, giants, and of course, the legendary began There's even an encounter with a UFO, described as a big wheel of fire. It was a privilege to talk to James about the folklore of his homeland. Now, on to the episode. Enjoy! James, welcome to the podcast. Well, hi. Thanks for having me. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at Culture Vannin and what Culture Vannin is.
1: Sure. Um, well, I am one of four or four and a half people who work at Culture Vannin. And Culture Vannin is a wonderful organization in the Isle of Man. And it's there to support, promote, and celebrate the culture of the Isle of Man. And so there are officers who work on Manx music, there's another officer who works on the language, Manx Gaelic, and there's a third officer who is myself. And as well as doing online and educational resources, I cover the gaps, which includes literature, a bit of history, and also folklore. And the way that culture of Anim kind of works is to recognise that the Alaman is a nation and a part of what makes Manx people, Manx is our culture. The music we play, the songs we sing, the stories we tell, and also the folklore, the sorts of stories we tell and pass on. And so it's a privilege to work here, to be able to promote and to celebrate these sorts of stories, which make us who we are.
0: Hmm. So with the republication of Carl Roder's book, what was that project like? What was the starting off point? Was it difficult? Or was it straightforward?
1: Well, the republication of this book was surprisingly simple. Um, it is uh, transcribed and edited and introduced by one of the leading folklorists in the Isle of Man today, Stephen Miller, RBV. And I was just asking him about one particular note in the book. And I emailed him to say, oh, do you have this particular note? And he said, Oh, yeah, of course, I've got the whole book transcribed. And so there he had it in one in this one PDF, and he had it just on his computer. And so immediately, my response was, well, that's amazing. Let's try and get this in in publication again. Because besides Stephen and I, there's only really a handful of people who have ever read this book previously. And it was of those people there are even fewer who really realise how important this book is in Manx folklore and also in Manx history. And so it was really quite amazing just through this email exchange to stumble upon this complete transcription. And from that point, it was all Stephen Miller's hard work to then work it up to publication standard and to pull together further notes and queries and also further of Roder's writings and to create the the um, introduction, and then for myself, it was the easier, but also slightly fiddly job of getting it actually into a book form and out the press, which was wonderful.
0: So originally, did it appear in a newspaper? Yeah, this this is it's published
1: as ghosts, begans, and fairy pigs now, but it was originally published in book form as Manx notes and queries. But prior to that, it had been published over 90 issues in the Isle of Man Examiner, a newspaper between September 1901 and October 1903. And it was just this series of notes and queries. And this is a type of article which was quite common around um, newspapers in the British Isles at that period. And it Roder felt that it was a good idea to start this up in the Isle of Man to collect in these scraps of folklore and the like. And so he ran it for that period. And then when that came to an end, he published it in book form. And that is where we've predominantly taken this book from. But we've also, we actually went back, I say I, but Stephen went to the original newspapers and he found extra articles off the end of that. And that's also now included in this republished and expanded edited book.
0: Hmm. So, around that time, how were people engaging with this kind of thing? Were there other people doing similar things to to this to what Carl Roder was doing?
1: Well, what Roder was doing in this book was very, very interesting, or in his newspaper articles, I should say, because prior to that, people had begun to recognise in the old man that folklore was a thing, and that it was important to collect. And of course it was all over and still is all over the isle of man but it wasn't the sort of thing which you would write down um i think the isle of man not unlike other places was uh, quite a secretive sort of place and um, these sorts of stories you wouldn't appreciate being passed on and they're not the sorts of things you would talk about the isle of man is a very religious sort of nation very good non-conformist sort of place and so Those sorts of people wouldn't like to be seen to believe in these sorts of things, perhaps. And so they wouldn't want to be recorded saying these things. And so prior to Rode, some people had tried it. um, Notably, the Isle of Man Antiquarian Society tried it, but they found it almost impossible to gather any folklore. But what Rode did, which, which was different, was that he went out himself. And started speaking to a few key individuals and so he went out and befriended one or two people and they went out for him or with him and introduced him to more people and soon enough he had this network of people working to collect folklore and in particular he had a very good friendship with one particular person from whom most of this book was to emerge
0: mm-hmm. who was that person um well on
1: the back of the book as it's published today we have a picture of carl rhoda and beside him is edward farragher um also known as ned beg Homboy, little ed with the red beard as it translates from the manx and he was a crofter so he was a small small scale fisherman and farmer who lived in a small village down in the south cragneesh which is today a, a folk village and he was a poet um as well as being these other things and he was um very engaged in these stories and he liked to write and he liked to talk and when roda met him he just opened up and so roda was giving him these notebooks and sending constant letters back and forth and Farrago was just sending stories after stories tiny little poems songs he'd heard um, all sorts of strange and wonderful things which were eventually published in this book and a part of why variger came to supply so much of the book was because when roeder started this newspaper article so few people were contributing and so he'd set it up not to publish his own stuff but to gather in new stuff that he could collect and would be safe because it was in print but as it happened, no one else really contributed and so it became the the um the mouthpiece for Rder to to publish the folklore which he himself had collected mainly through and by farraiger
0: right do we know much about Fariger's background in terms of how he was able to collate this information
1: well is a very interesting fella, in that he, in some sense, was so thoroughly... Well, it's a very interesting partnership, because Rauder is very much an outsider. As his name might suggest, he is not Manx. He was, in fact, German. And he, in fact, didn't even live in the Isle of Man. At the age of 21, he moved to Manchester. And it was only at the age of 34 that he made his first trip to the Isle of Man in 1882. And then from then on, he was visiting, obviously befriended Farragher, and there's an awful lot of his collecting was via correspondence. And so you have Rauder as this expert outsider who knows what he's doing. He knows how to do the folklorist job. And then he has these key insider individuals, one of whom is Farragher. And he was a quintessential Manx crofter. He lived his whole life pretty much, give or take, Um, excluding a couple of years, he lived his whole life in a small village in the south of the Isle of Man, and he lived his time in the fields or on the boat, off fishing, and beyond that, he did not go very far. But he was always reading, he was always writing, and he must have had a phenomenal memory, he must have been a phenomenal storyteller, because the contents of these notebooks which we have, and Manx Notes and Queries, are a phenomenal collection of these sorts of things. I think it's just a lucky, lucky situation where Farragher met the right person which allowed him to get these stories out and encouraged him to write them down and to send them out and to have them published.
0: Mm, Yeah, it feels like those stories wanted to be told. It it must have been so frustrating to have all those stories ready to go in your head and no one Mm -hmm. to talk to and tell them to. I mean, most people are like that, aren't they? I mean, if you hear a great story, you'll you'll tell your friends because it's because it's so engaging. So he must have loved it when when Rode turned up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and it's it's fascinating in that a lot of the earlier stories in this book are clearly from Farago, and then from later on, and in also in other letters we get from Farragut and Rhoda you you see that. Farragher is going out collecting stories. He is doing the folklorist's job. And so at the request of Rorda, he is visiting friends and family or people he knows down the pub sort of thing. And he would ask to hear a story or a song and he'd go home and write it down and send it to Rorda. And so it's with this encouragement from Rorda that so much was being collected. And I think that's quite uh, important in a sense, because if you are an insider, someone like Farragir, you wouldn't recognize all these stories around you as something unusual. It would just be mm. normal. And it's only historically looking back or looking from geographically from the outside that you see the importance and the unusualness and the the excitement of these stories. And so it's wonderful that someone like Roder could get Farrager doing this amazing job.
0: Mm. Do you think the stories that collated were contemporary to that time. I'm trying to work out if when he was getting these stories some of them are encounters that people genuinely experienced and some of them are works of fiction and or whether there's a need to distinguish that. Nowadays I I suppose considering some of the creatures and entities that feature in them it's tempting to question are these people describing something that happened or is it a tale and well, what do you think, based on what you read in, in the accounts that Röder published? Um, I think what's so fascinating
1: about this book, and so much of folklore in general, is that they are distinct from fiction. They are not fiction. Even if there are a few stories in here which are made up, as the phrase might be, they are still told in a different way to fiction would be. These are all told in the mode of truth this is a truthful story and there are some historical stories which get in here there are some which are from historical historical accounts a lot of the older historical accounts are from tour guides to the isle of man and they are often um sound they read a lot more like fiction but the vast majority and clearly farragher's stuff genuine things genuine things which are experienced and seen and very much told from the mouths of those who experienced it and it's and there were one or two pointers of why this is and it's and it's makes this collection stand out from other collections that I've read and certainly within the Isle of Man and the main point is I guess there's two clear markers of why this is. One is that the stories are written down, transcribed in the teller's voice. There's lots and lots of what we might say is bad English in this book, because they're not Rauda rewriting what's sent to him by Farragher. They are straight transcriptions from what Farragher has sent him. And so in that we get straight to the the teller. There's no medium. The folklorist is not standing in the way of us and the informant. And the other very interesting thing is that the stories are an awful, they're kind of scrappy, which is one word you could use for them. If it, there's another very big folklore book in the Isle of Man, and it's Ruda influenced a very important um, woman after him called Sophia Morrison, and she made a book to be popular Manx fairy tales, and a part of the reason for that was to get people telling these stories and to pass the stories back to the people, which is not really Rhoda's job here. And in her collection, Manx, Manx fairy tales, they have the stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end, they make sense. Whereas what Rhoda here has done is to put in um, nearly 300 separate little notes and stories many of which don't quite make sense. And from that, we kind of get this feel that Roder isn't forcing them in any way. He's letting them come in. And if they don't make sense, that's OK by him. They are strange little things. And he's just leaving it to us as the reader to make sense of them as we will. And that leads to some really interesting things now reading back into them, definitely.
0: Yeah, I mean, the scope of what people report in the notes is, is fantastic. There's pretty much everything supernatural that you can imagine. On review of what he was sent, what would you say are things that come across thematically as Manx folklore, that have a unique Manx quality to them?
1: Mm. Um, well, there's a few tropes in Manx folklore. And there's a few characters, as it were. And one of the key ones um, as an individual, it might be the Fenorderie. And this is a fella who goes out um he's shy of people. He's a great, hairy giant of a man and he will help on farms. But traditionally, if you try and give him any sort of help, any sort of clothes, he will take offence and flee off into the hills. And this is one of the Manx tropes, but he only appears in this book very little, which is interesting. Far more in this book are other sorts of tropes which you don't meet so often elsewhere. And so we have begins, as it says in the front cover, and a began is a good, scary Manx thing. It's frequently large with teeth and uh, very frightening, but also it's a shape-shifting thing. And so it can be a small cat, and then you might um, come across this cat in the road and it will grow into this large bull sort of character which will chase you around. And there's no end of these sorts of begans. And on that one, it's quite interesting because today, um, in the last hundred years, begans are still well known in the Isle of Man. And, but they've normally now refined themselves down to one particular began connected to one particular story. And so people today will think that it's just a scary monster, and we've lost this idea of its shape-shifting strangeness. Um, but in Rorda, we get back to this shape-shifting strangeness, like I say, and so begins appear, which are in the form of a man. And so a woman will be followed home by a man who will stare through her window at her as she sleeps. and. From the outside, without the context of the Manx folklore background, you wouldn't think that this was a began. But reading these notes and queries, you understand this context better and you come to see why this is a began and why this was such a threatening, strange, maleficent sort of thing which is out there. But of course, besides the began, there is, I think, dominant in Manx folklore are the little fellas or the themselves, or the Mungerberger, or the fairies, as we'd be nervous to call them, perhaps. Um, And these are, of course, like a lot of um, our neighbouring Celtic countries, they're not um, benevolent young girls with wings. They're, of course, um, little people who cohabit this world in some sense with us, and we need to be wary of them, and we should be should definitely be wary of them but in some sense frightened of them and there's an awful lot of stories in this book which discuss that and come very close to this idea of who the little fellows are.
0: Mm. There's a great note which I think you mentioned to me when we were kind of discussing what to talk about from the book note one two three all about fairies it's great it's just so full of information one thing I found interesting in that note was that it's mentioned that the term troll isn't used very much anymore. You don't hear that word being mentioned in terms of what these things are. But I suppose the Isle of Man, there was a point in its history where, was it, it ruled from Norway or the. Yes, it was. Um, And so it's, sorry, go ahead. Our, um,
1: our church is a part of soda and man. And it's, that dates back to Norse rule in the Isle of Man where we were a part of the the Sudri the southern isles and of course looking from Norway of course you're talking about those islands off Scotland and the Isle of Man and it's interesting that we still have these memories in our names and even our government is the Tinwald, and we have our Tinwald Hill where the government meet each year in an outside ceremony in a way just like the Norse did thousands of years ago and we, we we still have them place names, and you mentioned trolls. There's a, a farm not far out of the capital, Douglas, which is Trollaby. and it's it's believed that this comes from the word troll, or at least the word troll is there in the name, and it's we think that it's linked to a Norse era belief in the trolls in the glen near that farm.
0: Mm. I'm always intrigued by the idea of people bringing. Their folklore with them, the the beings that exist in in their folklore with them when they move somewhere, and but they'll already be existing folklore around that place. So do these entities do they meet each other? It's it's, it's just I, I try to get my head around that. When there was this period in the island of Man's history, did trolls start appearing more? And what did the Bougainnes think about that? and, <laughs> and it's, it's just really interesting. It is very interesting.
1: Um, Stephen Miller, the editor of this book, has gone into, uh, outside of this, he's gone into the history of the development of Manx folkloristic beliefs, as it were. And it's interesting to note that if you go back um, through time, the emphasis on the different types of being changes over time. And so these days you get very few giant stories which are still told whereas in Raudy you get quite a few and if you go back 100 200 years before that you get a lot more giants and I think it's very telling to that you can trace in the Manx tradition these different um themes or tropes the way how they change and morph over time and we certainly see that today um you had Christopher Joseph not long ago talking about Jeff um one of our the most famous bits of Manx folklore that talking mongoose but of course I think Christopher mentioned it when he first appeared Jeff was considered to be a began he was this shape shifting frightening thing and that's true to the tradition whereas today um however many years later 80 90 then we certainly wouldn't call him a began in common parlance because we've kind of lost that use of the word and I think that's very interesting. And the same with the the little fellas. These days, um, there's a bridge in the Isle of Man, which is very famous as the, the fairy bridge, where you're supposed to say, um, fast and I, good afternoon, little fellas. Um, but around that, you get an awful lot of people imagining these fairies to have wings and to be benevolent, which is... Um, obviously a modern import to the Isle of Man. If you go further back, you get to what you were talking about, more of these troll sort of characters. Um, And I wonder if it's worthwhile reading that section you mentioned, one, two, three, just the section of it, to kind of give people an idea of what they're about, perhaps.
0: Yeah, sure. If you have it there, please feel free to read it. I'll do it.
1: Cool. The Manx fairies are both big and small, have little eyes, and are agile and vindictive if annoyed. They are generally dressed in green jackets and red caps, but sometimes wear leather caps. They dislike evil smells such as muin, and live in green hillsides in the mountains and forests under human habitations, and sometimes in maturing. They are fond of hunting, and also fish in the glens and on the sea, and great lovers of music and dancing. Sometimes, if they can manage, they use men for their horses, into which they can change them. They kidnap and snatch human children and women and are particularly eager to capture fiddlers whom they keep in their subterranean dwellings for their entertainments. They visit farmers at night time and to keep them at peace and on friendly terms, every household has to leave them broken bread and victuals, cowry and clean water. Which I think is very interesting. It tells a lot about the, the Manx people's relation to these little people. The fact that they were around us and yet are, could do you an awful lot of damage. And so you had to leave out these little offerings in your household. And it's in your household, which I always find very interesting, the fact that they're not out there. They are literally coming into your house at night, and you have to be prepared to accept that, which is fascinating. The idea that this world, this Isle of Man and your own home is not your own, that you are accountable to these otherworldly sorts of characters who you have to accommodate and live by fascinating
0: yeah and they seem interested in humans as well o- often they'll want something that humans have because they don't have it i feel sorry for fiddlers on the isle of man <laughs> get always getting you know, great it sounds like a great gig but then you're under a hill for the rest of time but yeah it's it, it's it, it's it's really interesting it's in terms of what we were talking about before, I mean, tropes, once you get past that modern image of a fairy, it's such a rich world and so many little rules as well about how to deal with them. I mean, I know in Iceland, for example, they move roads around areas where they think the fairies are. Is that something that happens where you are? Is that taken into consideration when things are built in the Isle of Man? Um,
1: Not these days, no, but it is certainly something which, well, I say that not at a national level. Um, certainly no no government would certainly ever admit to that, even if they did think about it. But in a local level, certainly farmers will not do certain things on their land. They will not plough certain hills on their land, or they will not chop down one or two trees, or they will not encroach on this or that glen. There is certainly that around. That's something which is A bit like in Roger's time, you're not going to get many people to talk about it loudly. But in conversations with farmers on their land, certainly you find that all the time, that something is different and they need to treat different parts of their land in different ways, which is wonderful in a sense. And what's so interesting, like in Roger's time, people take this as normal. And it's sometimes fascinating to meet people, and this is something which I did last year, we went out for um, Eve Alden, the evening before May Day, and we, and Rod talks about this slightly in this book, and on the evening before May Day, it's going back centuries if not longer, um, it was the tradition to burn fires on the hillside, to ward off evil off your land, and there's a tradition um, of people doing this on their land still burning a gorse bush. Burn the butch it's called and we went out with someone to do it last year and he was amazed that this wasn't normal and he said oh you know put it in the papers you know other people will do it you just need to ask and so we put it in the newspapers and sure enough no one else did it and this person was I believe the only person left in the Isle of Man who's currently doing this ancient tradition to ward off evil on his farm each year and that says so much how people treat it you know it's normal and so you don't record it in any way and it's only when outsiders come in and recognize how strange it is that it's that it's um captured as it were
0: yeah i mean i with things like that i always feel what's the harm i mean i'd rather do it than not do it, it it's i mean i <laughs> I'm a pretty open-minded guy, so I I do think that that thing can work. It's but it's a ritual, isn't it? That's how rituals work. You you put your intent into it, and then it changes your perception of of what's going on. So yeah, I mean, I think it, it just it's very simple, but you just you you just need to do it, and then it's that's it, <laughs> and not feel silly or not not worry about seeming silly because it's you know well, who cares? <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely, and I think that's um, my work at Culture Bannon is quite good in that I'm allowed to talk about, or, you know, it's part of my job, to talk about these old traditions, and I can go out with these people and to film them doing something which they treat as normal, this burn-the-butcher tradition. And in doing it in the right way, to not present it as, oh, this is something weird, or we'll look at these weird people. If you present it as normal, then people will receive it as normal. And we've... um. I would like to say we've been responsible for reviving some traditions in the Isle of Man um just by presenting it in this normal way, which is lovely, and there's a tradition of going up to take rushes up one of our hills to as an offering to Menanin each year, our Celtic god. And we made a film of a family doing this, and it's now become a thing which people do just simply in Midsummer's Day, taking these rushes up this beautiful hill in the south of the Isle of Man, which again is in Roder's book here, of course. And it's because we've presented it in such a normal way, it's now living again. This is a living tradition. And I think that's a thing which sometimes people forget, that traditions live and then sometimes die, but they can also be brought back to life. There are folklore and our lives, our rituals, as you say, our things which are forever in flux and if they fade out now that's not necessarily bad things are just changing and they might come back and they might become something different in the future it's that's just the way things are
0: yeah i think it's like that, not it they go to sleep maybe entities like gods they're similar to ideas like an idea will become popular for a while and then fade out and come back and ideas never really go away they just they need people to manifest them in the physical world and um, can you just tell us a little bit more about Manannin? That sounds really interesting.
1: Um, yeah, I certainly can. There's quite a bit in Rorda here about Manannin. Unfortunately, um, I I can't recall what's precisely in there as opposed to what's in the air of Manannin. But Manannin is um, an ancient Celtic god, um, said to be son of the sea. Manannin Macalea, son of the sea. And there are an awful lot of older manx folklore which talk about mananin being the first ruler of the isle of man and he lived um here out my window here and peel castle on that um, saint patrick's isle there and also up on south berule and he hid the isle of man from potential invaders by shrouding in mist and that was until saint patrick came and he got through the mist and um, freed us from that pagan god. And from that point, we were um, a Christian country. That's the story. And it said That's... that Mananin rolled down the hill in um, a three-legged um, form and landed on an island off the Isle of Man. And the island sunk down into the sea. And each year when um, Lairbaldon, the 1st of May, falls on a Sunday, that um, island will appear just at sunrise for a few minutes
0: and then disappear back into the waves. Mm, I love that. <laughs> An island shrouded by mist with a mighty protector. I have to admit, it makes me think of Skull Island and King Kong. <laughs> I'm not saying Mananin was a giant gorilla. Well, maybe he was, I don't know, but, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's great, I love it. I really love stuff like that. It's such a rich story. It just fires the imagination.
1: Mm, absolutely. And it's it's fascinating that you can get back to it. The Isle of Man, like a lot of places, is a very historically very proud Christian country. But it's hence those stories of St. Patrick coming and winning that battle. It's But on reflection now, you, you feel a bit ambivalent about that victory, as it were. But um it's... In Rourdes here, there's an awful lot of fishing folklore. And a part of that is that um, 100 years ago, 110, 120 years ago, um, here at Peel, fishermen would put out to sea. And as they're just rounding the the islet with a castle on, they would put up a prayer. And it was commonly known in the 1900s as a prayer to St. Patrick. But there was at least one person who remembered it in an older form, where the prayer was being put up to Mananin, which is phenomenal. And in the 1900s, people would remember a prayer to Menanin, which fishermen would say, putting out to sea. And it's this sort of thing which illustrates that these aren't just stories of a god, these are a living tradition and a living um, faith, almost. The fact that the Manx whilst being a Christian people at that time, could also happily um believe in all these things and also put up prayers to Manannan, Which is says an awful lot about the Manx, I think. That sort of happy coincidence of these um different forms of belief which in the Manx uh, in the Manx person are not in conflict. They're just happily living together in the same
0: space. Hmm and it's it's lovely that even if just one person still does that that means that menanin he still has a presence on the island like he's still there and now i imagine a lot more people are aware of him and it's he's just there in the background like he uh, doesn't have to defend the island as much at the moment but
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely and it's um it's about 100 years ago they restarted well they started echoing the tradition of taking the rushes up south berule they um started to lay them on the the walkway on tinwall day i mentioned the government meet once a year to have an outside um government meeting to declare the laws true to our norse heritage and on the path between the church and the hill on which they sit is strewn with these rushes which is in memory of this offering to Menanin. And so there we have between the the seat of government on this um, government hill and the church on the other end, we have this path lane with this offering to Manani, which I think is just
0: marvellous. Yeah, I I love it. Um, Should we talk about some of the other notes that you highlighted?
1: Oh, yes. Sorry, I've gone rather off track
0: on that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 not at all. I I asked you, so no, please don't apologise. But the ones about malicious spirits, I found, well, I found it all fascinating, but the notes about malicious spirits were particularly interesting.
1: Yeah, this is fascinating. When people, the the cover of the book uh, is Ghosts, Begairns and Fairy Pigs. And I think a lot of people imagine ghosts to be the same the world over, perhaps. But of course, they're not. The form ghosts take in different countries is different. And there's a lovely form of ghost to here. And it is the um where is it? scare in Gornasach, the malicious ghosts, as it were. And these are generally, or they're completely, not a haunting by um a person who is deceased. This is a haunting by a living person. And normally it would be a neighbour or someone close to you who's in some sense jealous of you or holds um bad feelings towards you, and they either knowingly or unconsciously um, haunt you, and this can take various forms. Normally they don't haunt you in their own likeness, they can haunt you in the form of a a bull, is a good one, or just as an unformed spirit which might strangle you or um, pinch you or do horrible things to you, but there's a fascinating one in here, where someone is um, haunted by a large bladder.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I thought you were going to say that one.
1: <laughs> which is just phenomenal. And of course, it is, <laughs> when it's collected here, it's not comic. It's it's this... Cause imagine how frightening that would be, to have yeah, this large yeah. bladder bouncing on you and like uh, lolloping over the floor towards you. It's it's quite... well. It's a stuff of nightmares, quite literally. And Happily in this instance, the fella was close to the fire and so he had his hot poker, which he shoved into the side of the bladder and it disappeared. And of course, in the morning, his neighbour was reported to have um, an injury in his side, which um, put him in bed in a bad way for a long time. And this fella was relieved from being haunted from then on.
0: Yeah, it made me think of, imagine an evil space hopper. That's (laughs) right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's what I imagine when I, it's, yeah, it, it initially made me chuckle and I thought, but yeah, no, that would be horrible. Just like an amorphous, inflated thing. Mm. and it, trying to beat you up.
1: <laughs> it was um, in the Isle of Man, these, they were called molligs, and a mollig is a bladder which is inflated and then tarred. And these were used as fishing um, buoys. There it is. And so there was, there was a, a genuine folk connection. To bladders they were a known thing which were used in these sorts of ways which is quite interesting you know this tool this tool for fishing um finds its way into folklore in this way which is amazing
0: hmm. and like you were saying I, I can't remember many accounts of there being sort of spirits of the living it seems quite unique i'm I, i'm sure there probably are other cases but yeah it's something that I've not heard a lot about. The one thing the bladder makes me think of is, that I know that in Japan there's a type of spirit which forms as a the appearance of a giant hairy foot and it kind of stomps into your house and demands to be cleaned. That was the only thing I could think of in terms of a bladder that comes into your house and attacks you. But yeah, <laughs> the concept of mm. being haunted by a living spirit is is really unusual.
1: Mm. And I think it's really frightening.
0: I think it's the fact that they
1: can be consciously or unconsciously haunting you is, uh, I think, really frightening in both ways. The fact that you uh, can be maliciously attacked knowingly or that you might be maliciously attacking someone else without you knowing it is really, Mm. I don't
0: know, it's it's frightening in both senses. Oh, yeah. if someone going, oh, I had this really weird dream where I was a bladder and i and i kind of went to your house and attacked you but I don't, I don't know why i mean maybe dreaming was just just a whole different level in that time <laughs> yeah very much so.
1: i think um one of the other things which is in this book which i find so interesting is that the isle of man as a, a celtic nation um we don't really have the same relationship to witches as exist in other countries notably england perhaps and in that the idea of the pointy hatted um flying in a broomstick person in league with other witches and in league with the devil doesn't really exist here and it's it's there are one or two stories where that's clearly imported and these days it might be what people dress up at as on the 31st of october but traditionally if you look in roda here you you kind of don't find many of those and they stick out like a sore thumb far more common are um people who do charming and a bit like these malicious spirits it's a bit like um a trading sort of thing it's not um you don't need to be specially qualified to be a malicious spirit i don't think and in the same way you don't need to be in league with the devil or anyone else to be someone who can do charming and There's also this other nice thing, which is um, the, well, if you called a Kalyach, which I imagine I, which your Scottish listeners might understand, which is something like the Hansel and Gretel witch, where, of course, that witch doesn't do any magic. There's nothing magic about her. She's just someone who lives in the woods and eats people. And there's quite a few Kalyachs in Roder, which I find so fascinating because these are the. Sp- Because we're today, generally, most people don't speak Manx in the Isle of Man, and so most people are just using English. And so with that one word, witch, it's quite hard to keep a track of these different types of witch-like beings, including the Kalyach. And so there's lovely stories in here which deserve to be told and re-read again, but because we have lost the word Kalyach from common parlance, it's quite hard. Well, that's why they've they've gone out of common telling, even though they're such great stories. And so, so much more meaningful and narrative and um, there's so much more to them than any sort of story of someone flying around on a broomstick, which is generally a bit
0: silly, I think. One of the notes you highlighted was uh, an old grinning hag at the fistard. I, um which I, I, I liked a lot. And talking of the Kaliak, I've got a friend who does a podcast about uh, Scottish folklore, and there's and a very similar entity there, and been very much connected to the land as well. They found a, a really old wooden statue near near a lock in the Scottish Highlands, and they think it was a representation of the Kaliak. and. It was a point in the lock, I think, where it was perhaps easiest to get across, to travel across the lock. And there was an idea that perhaps this was a point where they provided offerings to the Kaliak for safe travel. And I I really like that idea.
1: Mm, Fascinating. I think it's, um, I think the, like the Scottish, perhaps, the Isle of Man uh, has a lot of secrets in the language. And if you start digging into folklore in the Isle of Man, you soon start digging into language. And so things like the distinctions of the types of things hidden under that one word which is a linguistic journey. Your journey into the, the Manx language to see where these things lie. And it's the same with place names and the like. I mentioned Trollaby already. It's uh you you might start down one path, which is folklore but you soon coming back you soon start coming back to things like language and music and the way people lived i think that's what's so interesting about folklore and books like carl roder's here that you set out in one direction and you're soon immersed back into this um, booming buzzing confusion of life back in the day which is just so wonderful i think
0: Mm, definitely is there a tradition of protecting your home from malevolent entities. And even though there's not so much of a tradition of witches, I imagine it'd be nice if you could put something in your house to stop a, a begain looking through the window. Is there, is there much of a history of that? Yes, there is.
1: Um, and if you if you look in the tradition, you do find witch being used as the word. But of course, a lot of the collecting is done in English. And so you would lose words like kalyach and other alternatives. Um, and they'd just be rendered as witch. And so you do protect your house against witchcraft, which, again, is an awkward English word. The better Manx word might be butcherach. And butcherach is the idea that uh, your anyone can take um, luck from someone else. And so I'm sure well known to many of the listeners be the idea of sweeping the crossroads to alter your luck or sweeping your threshold things like that and so there's an awful lot of that and of course the way that works is that it's not against a witch you know this pointy hatted person in league of the devil it's pretty much you and your neighbors can steal each other's luck or flourishing or whatever the word might be from your neighboring farm and there's a nice story of this from one of the most key parts of the year for the Isle of Man is um May Day Eve, Eve Alden, it's called, the last day before the 1st of May. And that's the day on which you can go out and change your luck for the coming year. And a good way to do this would be to go and gather up the dew off a field and to wash yourself in it, which is collected as a good thing. You know, go out, get the dew, bring yourself good luck, brilliant. But in actual fact, if you go back into the church court records, you find people being tried for witchcraft for doing this because they're not just doing it in the fields. They're doing it in their neighbours' fields. And so they're going out to steal the luck from their neighbours. And of course, this is not high level pointy hatted witchcraft. This is neighbour to neighbour um malicious dealings in luck. It's this sort of level. And so this is how you would also deal with the protection of a household. And on Evaldin, the last day of April, you would necessarily, everyone, and everyone still does, I think, on the whole, um, go and make a cross kern, which is a, um, a small cross out of the billiard kern. Um, it's a type of tree. I'm afraid I don't know the English for it, but it's a kern tree. And then you'd wind these two little sticks together with some sheep um, wool, which hadn't touched any metal. And so you'd go out, gather this, these twigs, gather this wool off the hedgerows, and you'd make this little cross. And traditionally, you'd wear it on yourself. You'd wear, put it on your cattle, but certainly you'd put it over your doorways so that on Ebaldin, um, no one will be able to take a look from your household. And there is yeah, there's one within sight of me here. And if you go into any good Manx household, you're likely to see it pinned, well not pinned, stuck over the door. Um, just to ensure that things are going right by them.
0: Excellent. It sounds like a wise move. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and it's it's lovely in that it is. It's um, yeah. It, I think in the past the church might have been nervous about this thing, despite it being a cross. But it's it's today been happily accepted by the the mainstream. And so, you, as well as institutions like Culture Annan, you can go into our friends at Manx National Heritage who do the museums. And they all run workshops where people can come in and make their own, as a family, make their kroshkern and go home and put it on their door. And it happens in schools. They might do school lessons and how to make a crush kern and these traditions, which is wonderful to see the mainstreaming of these folklore practices, which are so ancient. It's wonderful
0: yeah I, I really like that because at the same time i imagine it helps strengthen any little superstitions that people already have it it kind of makes them feel more comfortable about that it's i mean most people have little superstitions don't they and they've survived for a reason it's nice that that there's this move to encourage it and preserve it and yeah encourage it i i, th- I think it's great it's it sounds like it's a something that's beneficial move and and great for the island
1: absolutely it's um it's a part of what makes us manx and it's it's um to understand these little steps in what people believed and how they lived their lives the rituals the fact that they are different and they are unique and in rediscovering these and re-adopting those into our lives today we become that little bit more different a little bit more manx Mm. and we become we, re- I think, in a modern world, I think so many nations and individuals are struggling for identity, as it were, and it's a great privilege in the Isle of Man that we had people like Carl Roder, who went out and collected so much of this identity, which today we can reclaim and rediscover and re, um, reclaim in our lives to to be more grounded people in the landscape and in our nation and in our skins it's really wonderful
0: Mm, definitely So i think we've got time for one more note from the book it's a great one it's a big wheel of fire (laughs) ah yes now
1: i i think it's probably worthwhile my just launching into this and reading it it's only quite a short one i think
0: yeah please do
1: a big wheel of fire a man, when he was young, was seeing the girls home late in the night, and when coming to the end of the bare and clach glass the greystone road, he heard a great noise, and he looked in every direction, but could see nothing, and the noise was coming nearer. He did not know what to do, and so he got over the hedge, but the noise was just over him, and he looked up, and he saw a thing like a big wheel of fire, and it was going round at a great speed and went towards Balakuri, and when it was near that place, it vanished, and he saw no more of it. And this, of course, was first published in the Manx newspapers in November 1902, and I think that date, on reflection, is quite so shocking, because, of course, if you were to tell that big wheel of fire story today, I think few of us would struggle to not admit that it's a UFO story. Hmm. And I don't know if there's any space at all to talk about that as anything but a UFO, I think. This thing in a wheel of fire, this wheel of light hovering over someone, making this, was it a humming noise? And then shooting off to somewhere in the description, this farm which she described, it's about a mile or two dis- distant. So it shoots off this mile or two distant and then disappears. That's quite clearly a UFO story. And this is 1902. And so there's no doubt that this is the Isle of Man's first UFO story. And I am not an expert, but I think it might be at least the second um, UFO sighting in the British Isles. But I hope someone will be able to, a better expert will be able to tell us about that one. And of course, collected in 1904 and hidden in this collection, which hadn't been published until last year or so, this ufo sighting which i think is of certainly british and european importance was just hidden because of course it wasn't categorized as a ufo because in those times they had didn't that concept wasn't around this was just a very strange story and it says so much about roder that he would collect it and write it down just as it was because i imagine there would be other lesser collectors at that time in other places who would receive these sorts of stories it wouldn't fit into any sort of trope which existed at that time and they would either rewrite it or they would just leave it on the cutting room floor and not bother publishing it because it doesn't for them doesn't make any sense but obviously looking back now this is a very exciting and very important story just hidden away in this book which is really quite exciting
0: yeah i i loved it one of my favorite authors is a a chap called jack valet he was a ufologist and he's written lots of books about the similarities between ufo experiences and encounters with fairies or fey folk there's a lot of similarities and with things like abductions as well there are an interesting amount of similarities and reading that just it just made me, me, me think of that and i it seems Again, not to repeat myself, but it's, it's just fascinating I because it's, I mean, a wheel of fire, that's that's clearly a UFO. And if it weren't for this book, it, that account, we might not know of it anymore. So it's so great that, that there is this repository of information for it to, to be found in.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's so exciting. And there are other sorts of stories where Devil appears in here quite a bit. We talked about ghosts and uh, witches, for want of a better word, and the little people, the fairies. There's so much of this in here. And it's fascinating for me as a Manx perspective, but internationally, I'm sure anyone who has any interest in folklore would get so much more that I wouldn't out of this book. And I think that's what's so exciting about it.
0: Are you tempted to do a similar request now and see what people report back with? To ask people to to send in their experiences and create a new collection of of notes.
1: Well, we, I personally um, go out to visit places which are of folklore interest. Uh, there's so much in the Isle of Man, you can't move for it. I could walk. I'm around the corner from the bus former bus station where Jeff, the talking mongoose, used to terrorize the bus drivers. And. Um, <laughs> i'm within sight of the castle which was built by giants and whatnot you know this is the isle of man this the existence of folklore around us is commonplace well not commonplace but everywhere and it's um and so there's there'd almost be too much but on my travels certainly i and my friends have now because we're conscious of it we certainly are keeping our own little notes of things which are of interest. And so hopefully in our own little ways, we're certainly not at the Rhoda standard. But hopefully at one at one point we'll be able to do our bit for future generations of doing something. And I think as as a culture banner employee, I hope we can kinda refocus Manx attention a little bit back towards folklore and back towards collecting. And hopefully we can In the long term, hopefully we can capture what's out there. And um, these things should be have different challenges today with social media, but hopefully we can manage it to make it in some sense easier. And if any of your listeners have any particular manx stories of their own experiences, then certainly, please do send them in. I would be delighted to capture
0: them. Mm, Of course. I I think CultureVan is doing an amazing job. When I got the book, a friend of mine who grew up on the Isle of Man her and her husband had had their first child at the end of last year. And there's a book that there's an A to Z of Manx words. So I got them that as a present. And this is perfect. And I, I love the, the idea behind the project. So you know, well done on that. I think it's great. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Good am I, Ed? Thank you. Well, James, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. If people want to find out more about Culture Vanin and how to get the book, and to send in any experiences they've had on the Isle of Man. How best do they do that?
1: Um well CultureVanon, of course, has a good website, which is culturevanin.im. Um or search for culture vanin. Vanin is V-A-D-N-I-N. Um and on there you can find our contacts, and of course I am James, and you can find me at James at culturevanin.im.
0: Brilliant. Well I'll make sure to include that all in the show notes. Great, thank you very much. You're very welcome, James. Thank you. The more I read and research folklore and have the great fortune to talk with experts in that area, such as James, something very apparent about the events in the stories, such as those in the notes and queries Carl Rueda collected, is that they almost perfectly exist in that format. To question if they really happened or that the beings encountered exist is somewhat moot as their real power is in the telling of the story, which fires the imagination and affects the perception of the listener. That is their quintessence, and it helps to preserve the mythic culture of the places they come from. If you enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend visiting the Culture Vanin Vannin website and getting yourself a copy of Ghosts, Bagheans and Fairy Pigs. It would be a wonderful addition to your book collection. In the interview, you may have heard me mention a friend's podcast about Scottish folklore, that, of course, is Siobhan Clark, host and creator of the wonderful Myth, Legend and Lore podcast, which covers so much more than Scottish folklore. Apologies there, Siobhan. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't checked that podcast out yet, I highly recommend giving it a listen. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms where you can follow and subscribe. Ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. This episode will be ending with a piece of traditional Manx folk music titled Arana Nini. This is a fairy washing song collected directly from the fairies who were overheard washing their babies in a stream near Laxey. The singer is Mona Douglas who collected the song from the person who overheard the fairies. She is an enormously important figure in Manx cultural history. Playing the music with her is David Kilgallen, a leading contemporary Manx musician and composer. Until next time, be well and thank you very much for listening. (tries) Oh <tries>